Welcome once again to Exploring the Scriptures presentation of Church History Study with Dr. Ron Bartholomew. Here is Dr. Bartholomew. Hi, friends. I just wanted to take this opportunity to uh, um, welcome you to class. Welcome to class. We're continuing our study of the church history. I got my two friends here. They're so good for them. Um, today we're going to talk about the first half of Utah isolation. The next time, I'd like to remind you to listen to Golden Gems Radio. It's a great movie, uh, great uh, audio broadcast. It's on the radio. It's uh, FM. It's goldengems.net. Golden Gems on the internet or on their phone. GoldenGems.net. We're playing all Christmas music right now. Oh, wonderful. I, I can't wait to listen to it. We're also going to continue our study of church history. And we're today we're talking about youth town isolation when the saints first get here. We're going to start right now, I think, I hope. Yes, establishing colonies, civil government, and church expansion. This is a continuation of our study of church history with my friends here today. Let's go. Establishing the saints. Since coming to the valley, the saints had spent their strength in settlement and survival. It was really tough. But the harvest that year, I deal that a large crop producing enough food for the winter, so they're happy about that. As the saints began moving out of the fort and building homes in the city, church leaders organized them into 23 wards, each provided over by a bishop. New settlements also began to dot the Salt Valley and the valleys to the north and the south. Many saints started constructing shops, mills, and factories. The gathering place was beginning to blossom as the saints readied and welcomed the people of God. In March of 1849, an election was held to ratify officers for the proposed territory. And by early May, a 22-foot-long petition containing 2,270 signatures was on its way to Washington, D.C., proposing the creation of an immense territory, including all of what is now Utah and Nevada, portions of Arizona, New Mexico, Colorado, Wyoming, and Oregon and a third of California, including a narrow strip on the Pacific coast, taking in the port city of San Diego. This was a large territory. It was about the size of, well, it was the Great Basin, but it's going to be about the size of Texas. And they're proposing that it be made a territory. John M. Bernheisel was selected as an official delegate to Washington, D.C to negotiate statehood for Deseret. Thomas Kane, an ever-faithful friend, provided much help and advice. Kane suggested that they apply for statehood so they could govern themselves, inasmuch as territorial officials are appointed by the president. He suggested that Brigham Young be made governor. This was quite a suggestion that Brigham Young be made governor because Brigham Young was not seen as a as a politician, but Kane understood that, that people would do what Brigham Young said, so that's why he made the, the recommendation. A year earlier, at the request of Brigham Young, Kane had been in Washington and had spoken with President, President James K. Polk and other leading officials about a territorial government for Deseret. He had found little sympathy for the Mormons in Washington and therefore recommended that Deseret apply for statehood. 
He told Wilford Woodruff, you are better off without any government from the hands of Congress than a territorial government. That's what they believed. They'd be better off with a territorial government, but it didn't work out that way. The political intrigues of government officers will be against you. You can govern yourselves better than they can govern you. You do not want corrupt political men from Washington strutting around you with military epaulets and dress who will speculate out of you all they can. Kane also recommended that Brigham Young be the governor because his head is not filled with law books and lawyers' tactics, but he has power to see through men and things. So there was very much a push for Utah to become a state and to bring him to become the governor. Unfortunately, U.S. government officials were too preoccupied with pre-Civil War rhetoric and bickering over the slave issue to consider Deseret's application for statehood. Stephen A. Douglas of Illinois proved to be the church's best friend. So in the middle of this Civil War conflict, Stephen A. Douglas steps up for the saints and he does the following. As chairman of the Senate Territorial Committee, he suggested church leaders apply to be a territory instead of a state because the South would not allow the addition of any free states. He also changed the name to Utah in honor of the Ute Indians and to avoid offending the congressman from Missouri. So Stephen A. Douglas becomes a friend, but he proposes the exact opposite that the Saints wanted. The Saints wanted to be a state, and they wanted to be called Deseret. He calls them Utah and, and encourages them to apply to be a territory. President Millard Fillmore signed the Compromise of 1850 into law, annexing California as a state and Utah and New Mexico as territories. Neither the Latter-day Saints nor the federal officials knew then that this action would begin 46 years of mistrust and conflict before statehood was finally granted. That's the understatement of the year award. But... I just wanted to mention to you that making Utah Territory with territorial officials was a mistake in at least the 46 years of distrust. 46 years. Brigham Young was established as the territorial governor and other officials chosen among church members and those outside the church for political expediency. Conflict between the Gentile appointees and the members of the church began almost immediately. Brigham Young accused Mr. and Mrs. Broughton Harris of mishandling the government, and the members of the church accused of being not much more than animals because of plural marriage practices. So, establishing a territory meant we'd have government officials come in and run the government, and that's what led to problems from the start. Because he believed there had been irregularities in the Brigham Young's handling of the census and election, federally appointed territorial secretary Broughton Harris refused to turn over the territorial seal and $24,000 appropriated for running the government. In addition, Judge Perry Brockus asked permission to speak in general conference, where he blasted the saints for their immorality and lack of patriotism. Which was pretty much 
that view is held by by Americans across the nation that we were immoral and that we lacked patriotism. From the non-member point of view, members of the church were guilty of sedition for speaking harshly against the United States and its officials. They were a peculiar and immoral people because of their unusual marriage practices, and they were under the un-American political domination of their church leaders. So we had church leaders, practicing for marriage, were speaking harshly against the government's officials. They saw us as bad. We were just bad. The Latter-day Saints, on the other hand, felt justified in criticizing the United States for not redressing their grievances against Missouri and not bringing the murderers of Joseph and Hiram Smith to justice. Furthermore, they pointed out that despite these injustices, they were loyal to the Constitution. Back in the eastern United States, news of Brigham Young's thundering rebuke of Judge Brockus caused an uproar. Newspapers accused the church of being in open rebellion against the nation. Which, of course, we were not. One editor recommended sending the military to occupy Utah and maintain peace. The source of the news was Brockus himself. Although Brigham had tried to make peace with him after the conference, Brockus refused to apologize to the saints and penned a scathing account of Brigham's reaction to his speech. The ferment created by his remarks was truly fearful, Brockus wrote. It seemed as if the people, I mean a large portion of them, were ready to spring upon me like hyenas and destroy me. Now, of course, not having been in Utah themselves, but knowing Brockus, the people in the United States believed what Brockus wrote, and so the saints have a very, very, very ugly picture drawn of themselves. With the public decidedly against the saints, many people were calling on the president to remove Brigham from the governor's office. Brockus and the other officers, moreover, had written a detailed report of their tenure in Utah to the president. The report claimed that Brigham and the church dominated the region, controlled the minds and property of church members, and practiced polygamy. What are you going to do? If you're the president of the United States, what are you going to do? After the report was published, Jedediah M. Grant took a copy to Thomas Kane and they reviewed it together. Thomas read the claims about polygamy and dismissed them outright. They were nothing but absurd rumors, he believed. Jedediah grew uncomfortable. The rumors were not all false, he told Thomas. In fact, the, the, in fact, the saints had been practicing plural marriage for as long as Thomas had known them. But Thomas Kane, our only friend in Washington, D.C., did not know he was practicing plural marriage. Thomas was stunned. For five years he had loved and defended the saints, often putting his reputation on the line for them. Why had they never told him that they practiced plural marriage? That's a great question. I don't know the answer, but they didn't tell him. He felt betrayed and humiliated. Thomas agonized for days over the knowledge, unsure if he could continue to help the saints. He assumed that polygamy disadvantaged women and threatened family unity. He worried that defending the saints might forever 
associate his name with the practice. He's in a tough spot. On December 29th, Kane wrote to John Bernheisel with a plan for counter for counteracting the officer's report. As I still recognize the relations of personal respect and friendship toward you, he stated, I will be ready to assist you if you desire me to. But he urged the saints to do two things, stop concealing plural marriage and explain the practice to the public. That is the most difficult thing to do. After irreconcilable differences became, become obvious, the four appointed officials left for Washington, D.C. with spurious and exaggerated reports about the saints. Brigham Young wrote a letter to Millard Fillmore expressing his views. After an investigation, the four officials were ordered to return or resign, and they all resigned. Four more congenial men were appointed, and power was returned and held by Brigham Young and locally elected, fish, elected officials. The most important legislative act passed on February 4, 1852, gave original jurisdiction in both civil and criminal cases to local probate courts, which were presided over by church officials. This story is almost impossible to believe as Birmingham somehow maintains authority in Utah, which is good for us, but it was seen by the nation as uh, someone who was, well, practicing plural marriage. This, in effect, made it possible in most instances for these local courts to displace the federal courts, which were presided over by judges appointed by the President of the United States. The situation prevailed in Utah until Congress repealed the territorial stature, statute in 1874. So, we arrive in 1846. We are able to continue this 1974. That's almost 30 years. Now, my friends, let me stop right here. This is just the beginning of, of everything. It gets worse and worse and worse from here. But Brigham Young is still a prophet, and the saints are following the Lord. They wanted him to practice plural marriage. If I were to ask an audience, how many of you are descended from plural marriage, almost everyone would raise their hand. I descended from plural marriage. It was God's plan, but it was not the way things were going in the United States of America, and it was seen as a, as a terrible thing. Problems had arisen when three settlers in nearby Utah Valley killed a Ute named Old Bishop in an argument over a shirt. Isn't that terrible? When the Utes retaliated, Brigham had first urged the settlers not to fight back. His general policy was to teach the saints to live in peace with their Indian neighbors. But after counseling with the leader of the Provo settlement, who concealed the murder of Old Bishop from him, Brigham had ultimately ordered the militia to wage a campaign against the Ute attackers. Ah, <sighs> if the saints had just kept the rules, they, 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 they lied to Brigham, and so of course he, he tells them to fight against them. The swift and bloody campaign had put an end to fighting around Provo, but the tension it created spread quickly to San Pete Valley, where settlers had claimed choice land, blocking the Indians' access to fishing and hunting grounds. Out of hunger and desperation, 
Some Indians began raiding cattle or demanding food from the settlers. When the federal officers arrived in the territory in the summer of 1851, plural marriages had become more common in the church, making it harder for the saints to shield the practice from visitors. In fact, at parties and other social gatherings, the officers met the wives of Brigham Young and Heber Kimball, who made no effort to conceal their relationship to their husbands. So, from the position of the United States of America, we're doing everything wrong that we possibly could do. From the position of God, we're doing everything right that we possibly could do. Well, the, the problem with the Indians wasn't God's will, but the plumage is. A few months later, Brigham met with his closest advisors in Salt Lake City. Thanks to Thomas Kane, John Bernheisel, and Jedediah Grant, the, the controversy with the territorial officials was over for now. Brigham remained the governor, and, a new, federal, and new federal officers were sent to replace Brockus and others who had left Utah. Yet church leaders had still made no official statement about plural marriage, as Thomas had urged them to do. Thomas Kane went from feeling nauseated about plural marriage to feeling okay about it as long as that we told the world we were doing it. Brigham contemplated the best way to announce the practice. With its headquarters in Utah securely established, the church had never been stronger. Also, plural marriage now had a central role in the lives of many saints greatly affecting how they understood their covenant relationship to God and their families. It was a matter of religion, it was a matter of spirituality, and so they've got to tell the world they're doing it. Keeping the practice private for much longer seemed both impossible and unnecessary. The time was right to make plural marriage public, and they decided to explain the practice more fully to the saints and the wider world at an upcoming two-day conference on missionary work. The next day, Orson Pratt stood to deliver the sermon on plural marriage to the saints. His words would be published in the Deseret News, and other newspapers across the world would quickly reprint its report. Orson designed this, he designed the sermon to teach missionaries the doctrinal foundations of plural marriage, so they could teach and defend the practice while serving in the mission field. Afterward, Brigham's clerk, Thomas Bullock, read the Lord's revelation on plural marriage to an overflowing congregation. Most of the saints, including those who practiced plural marriage, had never read the revelation before. Remember, we don't live in a time where people have phones or internet or anything else. People had never heard of this before. They never heard the, never heard the revelation. So even people who are practicing plural marriage are hearing it for the first time. Some rejoiced knowing that they could finally proclaim the principle freely to the world. During this time, missionary work across the globe was rapidly expanding with missionaries sent to all parts of the globe, the eastern United States, Great Britain, Italy, France, Scandinavia, South Africa, the islands of the Pacific Southwest, including Hawaii and other places as well. The missionaries were married men with children who were called from three to seven years. At the same time, the Book of Mormon translation process 
also begins worldwide. Jonathan Appella, pictured here, helps George Q. Cannon translate the Book of Mormon into Hawaiian. The Book of Mormon translation had already occurred in Danish, French, German, Italian, and Welsh. And so we see two or three things happening at the same time here. We're defending ourselves at the world against plural marriage. We're taking the Gospels of the world with missionary efforts everywhere. We're translating the Book of Mormon into many languages. We're trying to get the word out. All, all three have that in common. We're trying to get the word out to the world. We're a restored church. We're a restoration of New Testament Christianity. We're trying to live the Gospel, and we're doing it the best we can. On the morning of April 6, 1853, Brigham Young stood with his counselors, Hebert Kimball, and Willard Richards at the partially excavated foundation for the new temple in Salt Lake City. With the saints assembled, Brigham and his counselors laid the cornerstone in the southeast corner of the foundation. Each cornerstone weighed more than 5,000 pounds. Now this temple will be torn down later, but we're not to that point yet. The temple would have six spires and would be much taller than the temples in Kirtland and Nauvoo, requiring a solid foundation to support its weight. In a meeting with architect Truman Angel, Brigham had sketched the temple on a slate and explained that its three eastern spires would represent the Melchizedek priesthood, while its three western spires would represent the Aaronic priesthood. Deacon, teacher, priest, that's the priesthood, High priest, 70 apostle, that's the, that's the Melchizedek priesthood. Your endowment is to receive all those ordinances in the house of the Lord, which are necessary for you after you have departed this life, to enable you to walk back to the presence of the Father, passing the angels who stand as sentinels, enable to give them the key words, the signs, and tokens pertaining to the holy priesthood and gain your eternal exaltation in spite of earth and hell. That was the purpose of the temple. Five years ago, last July 1st, saw here the temple cornerstone not ten feet from where we laid the stone. He testified to the saints at the conference. I never looked at that ground what the vision of it was before me. As the saints dedicated themselves to project and pay their tithing, Brigham promised the temple would rise in beauty and grandeur, surpassing anything they had ever seen or imagined. And some people still feel that way about the Salt Temple today. They still feel like it's the most beautiful building that they've ever seen. A year earlier, the Utah legislature had debated the status of black slavery in Utah. It's a terrible, terrible thing. Neither Brigham Young nor the legislators wanted slavery to become widespread in that region, but several saints from the United States had already brought enslaved people with them to the territory. What do you do with them? Brigham believed in the humanity of all people and he opposed slavery as it existed in the American South, where enslaved men and women were considered property and lacked basic rights. But like the most people from the North of the United States, he believed black people, black people were, were, were sued for the servitude. So Brigham Young believes believes in slavery and that he believes the black people are the best people to do the work. He also believes that they should not be considered property and lack basic rights. During the debates, Brigham declared publicly for the first time that people of black American descent could no longer be ordained to the priesthood. This was quite a 
thing for a president of the church to do, but he he he, he did it. For this time, people like Lenin had been ordained in North Church resisted then or afterward for the other races or ethnicities, just the black people. And that lasts until 1970. As he explained the instruction, Brigham Young got a widespread mistake and idea that God had cursed black, the people of black American African descent. Let me read that one more time. Brigham Young got a widespread but mistaken idea that God had cursed people of black African descent. Yet he also stated that some of these black saints would have all the privileges and more enjoyed by the members of the church. Orson Spencer, a former mission president who served in the legislature, had questioned how this restriction could impact mission work. It had have a great impact on it. How can they go secure to Africa? He then asked. We can't get them the priesthood. How are they going to have it? So this question about priesthood restriction went unresolved, however, and the legislature ultimately voted to create a system of black servitude in the territory. I don't know what to say about this, my friends. This is a sad time in the history of the church, but it happened, and it's true. Since coming to the Rocky Mountains, the St. Genesis settlements beyond the Saga Valley, including Ogden to the north and to the south. Other towns are growing up between and beyond these settlements. Bermuda also sent families to build in ironworks and so they need to manufacture iron products to make the territory more self-sufficient. Tragically, in the fall of 1853, Captain John W. Gunnison and a group of Army topographical members were killed by angry Indians, but they were that the, the, the Mormons did it. Twice in D.C., the Mormons did it. As a result, new elected President Franklin Pierce refused to reappoint Brigham as the governor of the next term, but the man he appointed signed a petition to reappoint Brigham instead. <laughs> When all the individuals Pierce appointed refused the position, he finally reappointed Brigham Young to a second term. The people who refused were smart. There's no way anybody would follow them. Mission work was so successful in Europe in the early 1850s that there were 30,746 in British Isles, only 11,380 in Utah. So there was three times the saints in, in the British Isles that were in Utah. Provincial education fund helped some saints obtain passage to Utah, but not very many. However, the friends and relatives of the immigrants were asked to help. Most community type earned enough money to pay their own way. As the missionary success continued, it became a Herculean task to arrange for the immigration of so many people, particularly since most commerce were poor. That is so true. The commerce in England, for example, were so poor they were just eating, eating they were just hand to mouth in terms of their food, etc. So, how could they raise enough money to come all the way to Utah? The PDF employed various agents along the route to the Great Basin to assist the immigrating saints. The agent in Liverpool, England, charged ships and assembled the instructed person of immigrants. This port here that you see in the picture is exactly the way it appeared in 1850. This is the port, the same port that the saints would have walked down to get on the boats. During the first few years, the immigrants sailed to New Orleans, where another representative them and booked packages at the Mississippi River to St. Louis. A third agent trans- transited out the Missouri River about five miles to an offending post where a final agent appeared for the overland journey to Utah. In 1855, the New Orleans Mississippi River route was abandoned for other reasons in favor of, the, of, of entering the United States of Philadelphia, New York, or Boston, where they went ashore by rail earlier to St. either St. Louis or just another route for the West. 
the entire journey is required eight to nine months. Can you imagine traveling in England to Utah and having it take nine months to get there? And they walk into the valley, what do they see? A desert. You know, we're half a century of seeds are all the same. There's only one seed disaster, only one rack. The same of some messages attributed this marvel safety record to the hand of providence and the fact that ships were often dedicated and blessed by the embarking on an immigrant voyage. This is where they went. They went from everywhere in Europe, around the world, to come to the United States. Notice we got people coming all the way th through Asia, through the Southern Asia, through the Isles of Australia, to Hawaii, coming around South America, around Africa. This is the greatest story ever told. It's, it's the story of the saints coming to Utah is really one of the greatest stories ever told. We'll finish it next time. I ask my brother testimony to you that the God is real and there's some tough things we talk about today in the history of the church. We talk about some tough things. We talk about slavery and how hard that was on the saints or in the saints. We talk about poor marriage and how hard that was for the saints in the early times. We talked about how the the Latter-day Saints were misunderstood and, and how they were misrepresented by, to the public because of their practice of polymerization, because of their willing, unwillingness to to dis, to discontinue or disrupt slavery. It's a tough time to be in the church. For the first part, you've got to, if you're most members of the church are in Europe, so you got to travel nine, nine months to get to Utah. Second part, when you get to Utah, you see it's Utah. Utah hasn't changed that much. It's still Utah. And it was a desert. Uh, so that's tough. And the third thing is the leaders of the church are trying so hard to keep the Latter-day Saints in Utah and keep them together. And next week we're going to study how they got there through hand cards, which is so difficult. And then they had, and then the weather turns bad, and they starve for two years because they can't get any crops to grow. These are our ancestors, my friends. These are the people who created the church in, here in the West. They couldn't have suffered more. They suffered physically. They suffered spiritually. They suffered politically. They suffered socially for what they believed in, what they did, what was right. I think most of us probably come from plural marriage families. I know I do. And I'm so grateful that they practice that practice so that there'd be some people that could live, tell a story. At the same time, I'm very sorry to, to report to you that so many things that the Saints did back then were against American culture or uh, politics, and we were harassed for 50 years for it. I'm sure this is going to be very difficult to tell you, but the fact of the matter is the saints endured. They endured suffering. They endured, it wasn't just physical suffering. They endured political harassment. They endured so many things so that we could have this, what we have today. I look around at our world today and I think, how many people know what the saints had to suffer to get here? Most people don't know, most Latter-day Saints don't know. We feel like we're suffering if we don't have enough food to eat. We feel like we're suffering if we if we have a, a, if our car breaks or something.
These people are really, really sober, but they had testimony that, that God lives and the church is true, and they were right. I were testimony that the church is true. It was, it was, they were doing God's will to practice poor marriage. They needed to do it to increase the number of saints, the number of people here in Utah and, and surrounding areas. I'm so grateful that they practiced it, even though it was very difficult for them to do for 50 years. I'm so grateful that they gave up all that, all the hardships to travel nine, mile, nine months to get to Utah, only to find that it was a desert here, and then to be sent to Panac in Nevada or somewhere in New Mexico or somewhere else. I'm so grateful that they were willing to do all that for us so that we could have a nice place to live and a nice church to live in. It's my one prayer that we'll stay faithful to the church, that we'll, we'll remember their sacrifices. Their sacrifices weren't wrong. Their sacrifices weren't they were they weren't they weren't wrong. They were just difficult, but they were right. They did they did the right things for the right reasons, and that's the history of the church. I bear testimony this true, and I say in the name of Jesus Christ, Amen. Thank you for being with us today for another segment of Dr. Bartholomew's insightful review of aspects of church history. This podcast is presented through the facilities of Golden Gems Radio. We invite you to listen to www.goldengems.net where you'll find presented each week a review of the music and career of one of the greatest musical artists of the 40s, 50s, and 60s, when music was music in the golden days of radio. Please join us again next week for another episode in church history with Dr. Bartholomew.